0: You're listening to the RSA Conference Podcast, where the world talks security.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the RSA Conference Podcast, where today we're focusing on the important topic of cyber safety. So this is Hugh Thompson, RSA Conference Program Committee Chair, and I'm joined by the lovely Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. Hi, Britta.
2: Hey, Hugh. It's good to be here. Yeah, this is definitely a topic that impacts all of us um, personally and professionally. Um, I know our guests, who we selected from among the top-scoring speakers at RSA Conference 2017, you can look up their sessions. They're referred to below the listing for the podcast. They have some really interesting perspectives to share. Um, Troy and Masha, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Hey, you're welcome. Nice to be here.
3: It's really great to be here.
2: Hey, Masha, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners in a little detail maybe on your path to your current role?
3: Hi, everybody. My name is Masha Sadova. I am the co-founder of Elevate Security, and we are a company focused on creating a platform that will measure, motivate, and educate employees on security behaviors. And I have been obsessed with the idea of how do we get employees to be an organization's best defense for many, many years. Uh, Before my current role, I was at Salesforce where I ran a team called Trust Engagement really focused on exactly this mission for uh, internal employees and customers and developers. Um, Before that, I was a analyst for the defense sector, and I've been playing in the security space for going on for 16 years, and I will be continuing to do so in the foreseeable future.
2: Awesome. Yeah, your 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 passion for this for this particular area certainly comes through in what you've written and what you've presented. Um equally passionate Troy, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
0: Yeah, I'm uh, Troy Hunt. I'm an Australian independent security researcher who just learned I had a top-scoring session at RSA 2017. So thank Woo-hoo! you. For that. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so I do I do a lot of work particularly with uh with data breaches which I spoke about at RSA actually when I was there. So I run this this service called Have I Been Pwned where I aggregate large data breaches and, and make them discoverable by the people who have been impacted within them. Uh, and I do a bunch of uh, web-based sort of security training and speaking and writing and, and other bits and pieces. So yeah, I, go, I get around a bit, I guess.
1: Wow, Troy, you do get around. And hey, congratulations uh, on, on your session at the last conference, in fact, that's that's where I'd love to to begin. You know, if you look at the media today on on the topic of security, it is everywhere. It's intertwined into almost every aspect of society. We're hearing about it relative to elections, massive data breaches. It's just an inundating message, even for people that. Uh, aren't in tech, aren't in the security space. And and I'm curious, you know, if you look at that noise that's been created, first, do you think that the level of security awareness for the average person is any different? Like, or do you think that they're acting differently? And I'd also like to ask you pro- probably a harder question of does, do you think that things are getting worse? And if you measured it by the media, things are getting worse. Uh, But do you think that that's reality or do you think we're just discovering more of these breaches? What's your take?
0: Well, I I think you sort of used some interesting terms there. You sort of mentioned awareness and then you mentioned is it changing behavior. And I'm... I'm sort of inclined to say, look, there is definitely more awareness because you just can't escape it, right? I mean, it's in the news the whole time. It's in mainstream media. This is one of the things that always sort of, I guess, continues to stun me. Like, I'm a, a technical guy and I do technical things. And then my mum and dad say, Oh, I heard you on the radio today. You know, like the mainstream normal person radio uh, because security incidents do prevail across across uh, the technology stack. It's, it's not just us techie folks who are thinking about it, it's everyday people, every day of the week you know, about security incidents. So they're aware of that, they're aware of things like we have multi-step verification, etc. I, I think they're, they're increasingly aware of that at least. But is it actually changing behavior? Well, you know, we're, we're seeing so many of these incidents and we're seeing so many really bad security practices. In some ways, I'm sort of reluctant to say it's actually moving in the right direction. And in fact, an interesting stat from Dropbox I got just recently is they only have about 1% of their audience turn on multi-step verification. And you're sort of going like, here is the thing that stops you getting what is arguably a really valuable asset owned, even if someone else gets your password, the same useless password you're using on every single site, and 1% of people use it so in some ways it's kind of a little bit depressing and then to your question about look are we seeing it increase i think the reality of it is is that there are so many factors contributing to the increase in incidents that it just can't go any other way so for example we have more and more online services you know that that's an easy one we know that uh, the other aspect here is that we're not really removing old data Right, So, I mean, we have more services over more time. I'm seeing people appear in data breaches from so long ago, they don't even know that they had an account on the service. Think about MySpace. MySpace last year was 360 million accounts in their data breach. And people are like, ha-ha, MySpace doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, they do. And they've still got your data from 2005 when it was actually a cool thing. So these services are prevailing. And then, of course, we're getting more and more cloud services, which are awesome in terms of, it is so cheap and easy to stand things up and build awesome online services, but anyone can do it and anyone does do it. And, you know, We're seeing in the news this week even the likes of uh, Accenture having exposed S3 buckets and things like that. So even the really, really big players are finding it easier than ever to screw stuff up through really simple mistakes. And then we throw in IoT as well. So I'm seeing data breaches from IoT devices now. Uh, earlier this year, it was the Cloud Pets talking teddy bears, the listening device you put in your child's bed. <laughs> you know, And they let their MongoDB exposed with no password. So, so that, all these that issues... That
1: is really creepy. That's, that's particularly oh no, creepy.
0: Oh no. Don't do this, folks. Like, seriously, don't put listening devices in your kid's bed connected to the internet. Like you, You're basically a bad line of code away from something going catastrophically wrong. Uh, and this is inevitably what happened in their case. So, it's, look, it, it is definitely getting worse because, r- really, it, it it can't not. There's too many factors contributing to it.
3: Claire, I really yeah. like what you, what you said about security awareness versus behavior change because those are two very different things. Like, if you take the analogy to smoking, people know that smoking is bad for them and yet millions still do it. Um, even though they buy the packaging that says, this will kill you. Okay, give me another pack. Um, Many people know about what password best practice is. Most people will know maybe what some elements of what they could do to turn on their 2FA or protect their account, but do they do it? No. Um, And I think that's a much more interesting question as we go forward with um, an ever-present threat of breaches to all of our online accounts. Yeah. So, Masha, you have done,
2: as you introduced yourself, you've created a lot of different types of training courses for a really diverse set of audiences. How, how then, do you hone in on what to develop and for whom to try to really make that difference in the behavior? I think Troy did differentiate really well between awareness and behavior. And is that a widening gap, or how, how do you find the right place to focus? Yeah. So, um,
0: I, I think part. Of, Sorry, go on. You you have a good (laughs) shot.
3: Yeah, so um, one of my favorite techniques is applying root cause and asking why. Why isn't this being done? Um, And just keep asking to see what kind of results you'll find. uh, And it may not be the situation you think it is. Um, From a security practitioner's standpoint, let's say, for example, you want people to start wearing their badges visibly. I've had this experience in an organization I've worked with in the past And I asked employees, why are you not wearing it? And they kept saying, I know it's the policy, and I know I'm not supposed to do it, but either I don't feel comfortable confronting my peers, which is a um, social engagement, and that's way different than security, or the badge pole that, that that is holding my badge is broken, and I don't know where to get one. And that is a simple fix uh, of physical device. So I could have had an amazing awareness program that said, where are your badges visibly? And it wouldn't have changed the behavior. So from a security practitioner's standpoint, getting curious and saying, what is it that we are missing in the way we are communicating with our audience? What is it we want them to do differently? So maybe it's turn on two-factor authentication. And really understand, why is it they're not doing it today? Is it too hard? Is it a usability issue? Are they not motivated? Do they not understand its purpose? Uh, do they not have the technical knowledge um, or a mentorship to be able to do it? And, and do we need to be able to provide more hands-on services, for example? Um, but I think truly making sure we're solving for the right problem um, will help us drive better programs to start changing behaviors.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can't help, but but getting into, I, I'd say, yeah, uh, an area of this security awareness training that that's very near and dear to my heart, but I, I think one of the most difficult ones. And I I, I know Troy, you spent uh, a fair amount of time in this in this area, but how do we get software developers more attuned to the risks that they have in the code that they write? You know, my my experience is that most software developers focus on how do we get uh, these features introduced. They do positive uh, testing, use case based testing. Obviously some terrific work has been done around maturing the security development lifecycle by Microsoft and others, but how do we get on scale people who are in the development community excited about thinking about those abuse cases of the code that they write. It seems like a really tricky problem.
0: I think there's a couple of angles to this, and and one of them, and it sort of speaks to the question before around why aren't people sort of changing behaviors as well, is that it's it's really easy to gain short-term gratification by doing things that are not in our long-term best interests. Uh, And and if we think about that from a user perspective, look, it's really easy just to use that same password you use everywhere, rather than then either have to try and memorize phrases or get a password manager. If we think about development, it's very easy just to keep doing what you're always doing or what you have always done, rather uh, as opposed to sort of figuring out uh, perhaps some more secure practices. I find that the best way to get developers into that sort of security mindset is to give them training where they get to experience security firsthand. So I I do a lot of workshops where I'll go into companies and spend a couple of days uh, and it's security training targeted developers. And we'll do things like get developers to actually execute SQL injection attacks. Now I do have a specific site for this. This is not like just go and break stuff. So there's a specific site, they go and exercise SQL injection, XSS, we play with Wi-Fi pineapples. We do all this sorts of stuff where We're breaking things in a way that allows people to experience firsthand what goes wrong with bad code. Uh, And then, of course, we go and look at defensive patterns and, and actually talk about how to implement it securely. But my really strong belief is that unless people get to experience this firsthand, they just don't get the endorsement. And if they're not endorsed, they don't get interested in it, they don't change their behaviors, and we just end up perpetuating the problems we already have.
3: So I want to I wanna focus on one thing you said there. I think it's important to have the uh, delight of the offense, but if you don't follow that up with a clear example as from the developer's standpoint of how they fix their code, don't just spend the time of like, hey, this is how you break it, but this is also how you fix it. So one of my favorite um, implementations of security development training is here's some vulnerable code. Show me how you would fix it. So you're spending time um, giving them the skills that they're actually going to be using in the future, because at the end of the day, you want your developers to go back and securely develop, not be offensive pen testers. So being able to balance both of those content and the places that you present um, is important, and and I I know you do a great job of that. I just I've seen other (laughs) other trainings fall short on the second half of that.
0: That, that's really important. And I, I think that's, that's very much a context issue as well. So one of the, the problems I find, and indeed the, the reason why I started getting so focused on security, because I'm a developer at, that, at heart, my background has been development. Uh, wh- one of the things that sort of really got me is that there's so much training from security people. And when I would see reports come from security teams to developers, they were such a security centric mindset, which would talk about, here is how we break stuff. And then basically go and Google it, you know, like figure it out. So I I totally agree with that. And this is part of the sort of talking about the defensive patterns. People have got to understand uh, what something like parameterization for for SQL queries actually looks like. Because the problem we've got at the moment is developers in general seem to have a bit of a sense that, yeah, I should parameterize my queries because there is this, you know, SQL injection thing. But they've never experienced it. They've never felt it firsthand. And I think we've got to sort of find this like like happy spot in the middle where we go there, see security folks and here's how they do and here's how the sort of the offensive thing works. Uh, and, you know, you guys have got to actually build the defensive software and here's what the patterns look like. And if, if we're just sort of leaving ourselves in one camp or the other as we've traditionally done so much, we're just going to keep getting the same results.
2: So, try, I want to go a little bit further into keeping your developer brain on. I, I know one of your particular areas you're super focused on is, is browser content security policies. So with, with that in mind, can you share with our audience some of your greatest lessons and recommendations of what it is you think needs to be done differently there?
0: Yeah, so browser CSPs are interesting, and there's a there's sort of a, a few really curious facts here. So you know, one of the things is is that in terms of CSPs, just about zero websites use it. Uh, and now when I say just about zero, it's about two percent of websites, or, or up to two percent of websites of the Alexa top one million. So these are sort of the biggest, most progressive websites as well that actually use any sort of CSP whatsoever. And and what I think is really really interesting about the CSPs is First of all, it gives us this sort of defense-in-depth kind of approach. It allows us to add controls that protect against things like cross-site scripting if you have screwed up the other things that lead to XSS in the first place. I love the, the implementation such as reporting. So most people don't know that you have this ability to say, add a content security policy, what was it, a content security policy header and then tell the browser if anything is violated to report it back to me. Now, there are lots of things here that actually help developers solve some of the problems they're trying to deal with as well. Uh, so a great example is you can add a content security policy header which says, uh, let's make sure that if I accidentally embed any insecure content on a secure page, we upgrade that request, we make it secure, but also t- uh, send me a report. So actually send a, a report from the browser to a URL of my choosing which tells me what I screwed up. And it allows you to have this sort of closed loop of pushing out changes, getting reports on what's broken, fixing them, pushing them back out again. And this sort of stuff is awesome and barely anyone knows about it. It's one of the things where I do this in my workshop and go, hey, who's seen a CSP before? And it's a single digit percentage of people every time that have even heard of this thing.
1: Yeah, you raise a really interesting point. I I, I think... I think one of the biggest challenges that we've seen in practice over the years just of of RSA conference is as we try to convey to a group of people that a feature exists, that a best practice exists, that it's safer to do X versus Y. One of the biggest debates, I guess, that's come up from organizations is what is the right way to incentivize people around good and bad behavior? And, Masha, you delivered a fantastic talk at this past RSA about using positive incentives. You know, I just want to contrast this and then ask you a question. You know, we had a a session uh, at RSA uh, in Europe. This was probably five years ago where someone gave uh, another talk about, you know, how they implemented a secure coding training program and a, in a large organization and their approach is very different they had a large inflatable fish that was probably i want to say it was maybe five feet long and then they would take it to whoever was the biggest violator that past um week and <laughs> would hang it up above their uh their desk and you know they would kind of be brandished with this uh this fish for a while so that's a that's certainly a a negative um uh, approach to it but what i loved about uh about your session and what you talked about is these positive incentives for catching people doing the right thing can you talk a little bit about that and how you create that that environment
3: yeah yeah excellent question and the you know that fish story is is not the only instance of heard. I've heard people being fired for numerous, you know, repeated fish and clicks. Um, there's always the famous Microsoft, I broke the build T-shirt, and you get to wear it until someone else breaks the build. Uh, but I feel like from a security practitioner standpoint, we've gotten really good at negative reinforcement. Here's the policy, and if you violate the policy, um, you're fired, or there are repercussions, or you'll hear from us. And so people don't have a very great association with security uh, as, a, as a whole. Usually it's neutral to negative at best. But if we take the chance to recognize can, when people do the things we ask them to do, whether or not it is specific action like install two-factor authentication or have secure passwords that aren't reused, congratulations, this is your 10th in a row you've remembered, you know, congrats. you've know, you done it right. Or more specifically, things like, I need you to report suspicious activity when you see it. And when you do, that's the behavior I want to acknowledge and applaud you for doing. And that's really important because it starts building trust in your uh, organization between employees and security teams. And employees will start seeing that when I do the thing that the security team has asked me to do, Someone notices. Someone cares. This is something that I should go out of my way to do more of. Because we're asking employees who have full-time day jobs doing other things like sales or marketing or development. And we're asking them to layer security on top of it. Uh, and if the only thing we contact them with is negative reinforcement, at best, you know, they'll do it out of fear. They'll do it out of shame. And that doesn't breed the level of, trust that you need when an, an employee makes a mistake and says, I ha- I've done something that I shouldn't have. I've run the executable. I've given away my password, but I trust you as a security team to help me work through this because I know you're on my side. And if you can get that level of relationship with your employees, you start using your employees as part of your defense mechanism against attackers. You'll reduce dwell time. You'll start seeing reports about things that – um, your technology has missed. In some ways that I really love doing this, um, it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be over the top. It could really just be a thank you email. They could be shout out, shout out by senior executives to specific people who you know, saved the day. Um, I've seen recognition for uh, security champions and like their entire team gets pizza or cupcake slots for them um, as, a, as a thank you even parking spots given away to, to the top fish reporter of the month, for example. Uh, so whatever resonates with your culture, try putting in positive reinforcement uh, as opposed to negative. And I, I often ask my uh, my workshops or my training courses, uh, when people take them, what percentage of the companies that are in the audience who have actually you know, implemented positive enforcement? And it's consistently about 20%. So we have a long way to go before we start evening out positive to negative interactions between security teams and employees.
2: Isn't that interesting? There's, it feels like there's so many life lessons here, you know, as, as someone who's, well, I have teenagers now, um, you know, but raising them through the toddler years, all of this, It's there is something to be said for the power of positivity. I mean, we're all human, um, and, you know, This is we're human, so another human trait that we deal a lot with with our RSA conference audience, Masha, is um, we like to measure things. Um, We get a lot Mm -hmm. of interest and inquiry around metrics. You know, help me know is it working? Isn't it working? What do I need to do? How do I show success upward and outward so I can get funding? So I can establish baselines. Um, How how do you best measure then security awareness?
3: Yeah, well, if you if you don't know what you're measuring, you can't get to where you want to go. So um, the very first thing is getting clear on what it is you want to be measuring. So what's the security behavior you want to start driving and changing? What does a good outcome look like? So saying I want to reduce efficient click-through is a nice idea, but it's probably uh, much more impactful if you can say, i need to reduce my efficient quick-through, so um, a campaign of level difficulty X will have 15% quick-through or less. Um, And you can see how you're measuring yourself against that kind of metric. But what's really important um, is the shift that we as a security awareness industry need to start taking. Because right now, the only thing we're really measuring is how many people have taken a training. Uh, We don't ask ourselves, well, how impactful was that training? How many people actually changed the behavior that I asked them to do after they followed up with that training? Uh, did they actually reduce malware infection? Do they actually write more secure code? Did they report more. And if you can start measuring the impact of a training, as an example, um, then you can start seeing, OK, so I have um, this outcome from my training, and this many people went to the training, so I know overall this is the direction my organization is going. When you start measuring things, you can start seeing if the campaigns you're rolling out are effective or not. What I would love to start seeing is more metrics in their industry around um, what is driving better behavior change. Is it the newsletters? Are they funny videos? Is it in-person training? Uh, are they hands-on exercises? Are they executive outreaches? So, uh, and and how much more impactful is one versus the other? Uh, So that we can actually start putting our time and our energy and our employees' time and energy into actions and and into activities that actually start making measurable um, change and and a dent into the behaviors we want to be seeing then improve on.
2: Right. So, so, Troy, we have just, we've covered a lot of ground with our professional hats on. I'm going to shift gears a little bit to all of us as people, as individuals, who can't always control how our data is used, um, as we've seen, you know, in recent breaches, illustrated very well. You, as mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier, run a great site, Have I Been Pond, um, which I do check regularly. What recommendations would you have to, to us, to us as individuals, for how to keep our data safe or at least know if we're at risk?
0: Look, I think most of your audience will sort of get the, the fundamental ones and the, I guess, the everyday consumer guidance around strong passwords that aren't reused, password manager, multi set verification. I mean, all that sort of stuff is is pretty run of the mill. I, I think what gets a little bit more interesting now to think about is, do we have to sort of start working on the assumption that at some point in time our data is probably going to be disclosed anyway, and start to think more from the perspective of what do I actually want to digitize and how long do I want to keep it? And, and this is an enormously difficult problem. In fact, I wrote something about this just last week because there was this, this sort of piece in the news about uh, it was someone in a security role at Google. I can't remember her name. But she was saying, look, she goes through and deletes love letters from her husband because she's worried that at some point her data will get disclosed because it's just becoming such an inevitability. So that I think what we want to start considering is, is first of all, what should we digitise in the first place? Now you, you hear stories all the time about Someone has lost their nudes or something like that now. I, I, personally would probably, uh, think about whether that was something I wanted to take the risk of digitizing or not. No. Right.
2: And sure. I'm not saying go out and buy a
0: Polaroid camera and just, you know, go all analog and old school on it. Uh, however, that, that is a really good example of, of not being able to lose something that you do not have. So I'm very cautious about what I digitize, uh, anything that I put on, say Facebook, for example, I I assume that at some point it will be shared publicly. I think the more interesting question here is, how do we actually go about purging old data? So uh, yeah, I've got the same uh, email account that I've used for 20 years. Yes, it's a Hotmail account. And I have got, I've got emails from girlfriends there. You know, like before I was married. (laughs) I've been with my wife 18 years now, so that goes to just goes to show. Uh, I've got all sorts of discussions with uh, accountants or lawyers or prospective employers in negotiations, all sorts of things. And as much as I could go through and purge old email, there's no way of purging old DMs. I've got no idea how much is in my Facebook Messenger history or my Skype history. And we, we've now got these paper trails, these digital paper trails, that we just simply cannot control. So, as much as I'd like to say, "Look, just don't digitize things that you don't need to," the reality of, of how you actually purge your digital life and only retain what you need to is an unsolved problem. Sure,
2: sure. Yeah. And, and even you know, again, as, as the parent of teenagers who, frankly, have grown up with kind of a different perspective about, or maybe no perspective gained at all yet, about privacy, about thinking about all that. There's a um, there's a lot to work through there.
1: Yeah, and you know, yeah. on that on that point, I really wanted to ask um, ask both of you, Troy and uh, and then Masha, you know, if you had one piece of advice to give this audience as a closing uh, closing kind of commentary, it could be something in their personal lives and their professional lives. Uh, what what would you tell them? What's the one thing that they could probably do today to improve their cyber hygiene that maybe they're not thinking about? Maybe, maybe it's something easy. Maybe it's something hard. But would love to get perspectives from both of you on on that practical piece of advice um, that uh, that you'd give our audience. So Troy, I'll turn to you first
0: so in terms of what should our audience do to sort of practically change their exposure
1: yeah if there's if there's one thing you could tell like for example, you mentioned that stat at the beginning, uh which is pretty amazing around box and the fact that very few people were using two factor authentication you know is it is it that should I go and two factor authenticate everything, or is it uh the point you were heading on uh, at the end about should I just be going around redacting? <laughs> And deleting uh a whole bunch of old data that exists. Like if I you know, if I recommitted myself to security hygiene this October, um, which would what would I do if I could, if I would only do one thing?
0: Y you know, honestly I think if you were to only do one thing, it'd be a password manager. And and I would love to say yeah. the one thing you should do is two step two, two Factor, multi-set, whatever we want to call it, I'd love to say that should be the thing, but lack of support uh, across the board for different services, lack of support in regions as well. I don't know if you guys know this, but a lot of stuff out there favors the US, so I can't get multi-set verification on PayPal. You know, PayPal got my money, and I can't get that. Uh, so, what I can do though is I can create a strong unique password by using a password manager. And, and honestly, like that is just to me like the single most Valuable practical thing by far and away we can do. Marshall, the same
1: same question to you. I mean, you've been very involved with the uh, National Cybersecurity Alliance for a long time, and this, of course, uh, is uh, is October, which is uh, a huge focus on on cyber safety. What what's the one piece of advice you'd give? Yeah, I was going
3: to actually go with with what Troy said, uh, and, and wow. I think we need to. Uh, we, and I'll, I'll, I'll add uh-huh. a one, but uh, I think we need to rebrand password managers because people are like, Ooh. "But if that gets hacked, I you know I'm screwed." And people don't understand that 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 is a totally appropriate trade-off. Like having a unique password for all of your sites is much better. Um, than trying to remember your own your own uh, password for all of the sites. So that's my, but but I actually I was going to go with two factor auth and one of my favorite um, resources for this is a website called twofactorauth.org and it lists all the websites that have it um, and the ones that don't they have an embedded way of either sending them an email. Or a tweet that basically said, "Please support two-factor in your in your um, application, because uh, we, as pre- uh, as consumers of this technology, we, we need to start demanding that our data be protected better. Um, and if we need to vote with our dollars by going to services that have better security, or start demanding that of our application, um, we can start moving technology into a
1: place that will make it more secure for us." And that is a fantastic ending note. Vasha, thanks so much. Troy, thanks so much. I really appreciate both of you spending the time. And I just just wanted to, to summarize, I think, at least a few of the things that, that, that I heard. You know, one was that even though we're hearing much more about security in the popular media, it doesn't necessarily translate into uh people's security hygiene. Increasing and uh, Troy, you made the great point uh, that we're seeing all of these factors around digitization, how easy it is to adopt pieces of technology as a as a company or even an individual, uh, driving the consequences of this stuff up up even more. And Masha, I loved uh, I loved your take on how would we actually get security hygiene to increase inside of an organization moving from this the name and shame model uh, that I think a lot of people have have implemented, maybe even as a default, to uh, how can we really drive positivity to make uh, and, and kind of encourage and nudge folks to, to do the right thing? And then how do we measure these things in a way that actually leads to the outcomes that the business is looking for? Or maybe even the outcomes that a family's looking for when you think about uh think about security hygiene and the you know, last point was uh you know, what's what's the one thing you'd you'd recommend and i I'm actually gonna although you guys uh, mentioned two i'm gonna bring up also one uh, that troy mentioned earlier, so both of you are huge fans of uh of password managers uh so you know I think since since both of you are very supportive of that, I'd really encourage our uh, our listeners to, uh, to think about that if you're not doing it already. And then two-factor authentication, um, which I think, you know, Troy, to your point, is not available everywhere, but Masha, to your point, you know, that so many applications have it and are underused. And Troy, I can't help but recapping um, on a different point that you made, which is, maybe we should go back to the old-fashioned Polaroid cameras for certain situations uh, and not go digital uh, on those photos. So, so, so really, really appreciate, uh, appreciate your time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, looking forward to seeing you at, uh, at this next podcast, where we'll focus on security strategy and operations. And please engage with us socially on social media. So thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.